Poland is now squarely on the side of Ukraine and against Russia's invasion. But is this friendship rooted in their history? So this is a very important background to what's going on in Ukraine at the moment. Because for centuries, the Ukrainian, the Ukrainian lands were ruled either from Kraków or Warsaw or Vilnius. For about the same amount of time, they've been ruled from Moscow. So to regard them just as Russian is wrong. And it's why the, the history of Poland-Lithuania is, is vital and important to this very day. The influences are still to be seen. You know, in the 20th century, Lviv and Lviv until 1939 was very much a Polish-speaking, Yiddish-speaking city with large Polish and Jewish populations surrounded by a large population of Ukrainians in the countryside. Many of the Ukrainian nobility, let's call it, were became over the next 50, 100 years, they tended to become Catholic, Roman Catholic, and to speak Polish. They were Polonized, as the historians call it. Did you know that in the 16th and 17th centuries, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth was one of the most populous and largest countries in Europe? It stretched from the Baltic Sea to almost the Black Sea, engulfing much of modern-day Ukraine. Hey there, News Peelers. Today is May 20th, 2022, and this is Adele, the host of the Peel.News podcast. Once a week, I have the pleasure of speaking with distinguished professors and critically acclaimed authors who help us better understand our news and current events by providing some perspective from our past. We call this peel into history behind news. Sometimes we find humor in what they share, sometimes it's a shocker, and sometimes they reveal a past that's offensive. Regardless of what they share, we're always the better for learning from our intellectual and engaging conversations with them. So the Peel Dot News is not for everyone. If you want headline news, well, you know where to get that. But if you want to explore how we got here, if you want to journey into what happened before these developments showed up as news on our TV and device screens, then grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and let's get into it. The Soviet military cemetery in Warsaw, Poland is the burial place of over 21,000 Soviet soldiers who died fighting against the Nazis. In Russia, the sacrifices of those Soviet soldiers is commemorated on May 9 as Victory Day. Well, on the 9th of this May, as Russia's ambassador to Poland attempted to lay a wreath in front of a 115-foot-tall obelisk that is adorned with the Soviet star at its very top, Several hundred Ukrainians and Poles swarmed the cemetery and drenched him with red paint. Several weeks earlier, Poland had expelled 45 Russians whom it accused of spying. Around the same time, Poland had proposed to give its Soviet-era MiG-29 fighter aircraft to the U.S. with the intention that the U.S. would in turn provide them to the Ukrainians. In fact, Poland encouraged other NATO countries to do the same. 
And we all have watched how Poles are welcoming and caring for Ukrainian refugees, the latest number of which, according to the BBC, is more than 3.4 million, which is close to 10% of Poland's population. As Poland stands with Ukraine in that country's moment of crisis, it's interesting to look at the history of these two countries because it provides some perspective as to why Ukraine gazes to the West for inspiration and not to Russia. And don't you wonder why most of us Americans don't really know much, if at all, about the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, this large and influential country. To better understand all of this, I spoke with Professor Robert Frost, who joined us from Scotland for this conversation. He's the Chair of History at the University of Aberdeen, and for the last 22 years, his main research interest has been in the history of the Polish-Lithuanian Union and its legacy. You can check out his extensive research and publications on this subject by visiting his academic homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So stay with me as Professor Frost and I peel the history behind this news. The Peel.News is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the Peel.News podcast. Professor Frost, it is such a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. So, Poland, there's a long and glorious part of Polish history that most people, especially, I have to admit, most of us in America, are not aware of. And it's a part that really is is quite important in shaping Europe's culture and geopolitics. Uh, By by the way, I need to correct myself. It's not really Poland. The proper name is Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. So what is this Commonwealth? Well, let's start with the Polish-Lithuanian Union, because that's what really sets it off. I mean, Poland and Lithuania were two very different polities, and I'll use the word polity advisedly, in the late 14th century. Poland was a kingdom that had been founded in the late 10th century and had a continuous history from that point, although it had divided itself up at several points and come back together again around 1320. Lithuania was a very unique formation. The Lithuanians were pagans. They're not a Slavic people. They're a Baltic people. And they were pagans until the end of the 14th century. But the, there is a distinction between Baltic and Slavic people. Yeah, there Interesting. is. Interesting. Okay, so the Baltic languages are Indo-European, like Slavic languages, but a different branch, completely different branch of the family tree. So, so Lithuanian would be more closer to, let's say, Swedish, Norwegian. Nope. No? no, Lithuanian no. is related to Latvian, but not Estonian. Estonian is non-Indo-European, although we. We lump the Baltic states together. Yeah, we do. Modern, That's interesting. Wow. Modern conditions. But Lithuanian is related to Latvian and some languages that are no longer spoken, most notably Old Prussian, Old which wasn't Prussian. German. Yeah. So the Grand Dukes of Lithuania 
had extended their rule by the sort of mid 14th century over much of the land of what had been Kievan Rus, the old Eastern Slavic state of the medieval period after the coming of Orthodox Christianity from Volodymyr the Great in 988. He'd accepted Eastern Christianity from Byzantium, not Western Christianity like the Poles had accepted in 966, about 20 years earlier. Western Christianity so, being Catholicism, right? Ro- yeah, what we would call Roman Catholicism today. Yeah. So Latin Christian- Christianity and Greek Christianity, if you if you like, were the two yeah. different sources, which creates a cultural division, which is important. And the point at which these two polities, as I shall call them, get together in 1386 is a major geopolitical moment in European history because the pagan Grand Dukes of Lithuania decide to unite with the Kingdom of Poland. The Grand Duke of Lithuania, a man called Jogaila, who's about 44 years old, marries the 12-year-old daughter of the King of last King of Poland, Louis of oh, Hungary. <laughs> who, Louis, of, Louis of Hungary had died in 1382 and leaving two daughters. And he'd made a deal with the Poles that they would accept one of his daughters because he had no son after his death. So they accepted the other one that um, he designated. He wanted one to inherit Hungary and one to inherit Poland. The Hungarians chose the one he wanted to inherit Poland and the Poles chose the one he wanted to inherit Hungary. So Jadwiga, this 12-year-old, marries Jogaila. And Who's Jogaila, 44. Who's 44. Oh, boy. It's not unusual in Europe at that point, in dynastic marriage. And Jogaila promises that if he accepts, if he he marries um, Jadwiga, he will convert to Roman Catholicism, Latin Catholicism. He will convert his pagan family to Latin Catholicism, and he will baptize his people. Wow, that's a big deal. It's an enormous deal. And he partly does it because... The Grand Duchy of Lithuania, which is enormous, it stretches, you know, modern Lithuania is quite small, but the Grand Duchy of Lithuania stretches from the Baltic Sea, more or less down to the Black Sea, um, and covers... Wait, say that again, from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea? That's ginormous. More or less. It's ginormous. It includes what today we would know as Belarus. It includes most of what today we would call Ukraine. And it includes some of what today we would call Russia. So it is huge. It's the biggest. That's state. an empire. Well, some say it was an empire. Um, yeah. Other, others say empire is an inappropriate term. But whatever, it's a huge polity. The problem for the pagan Lithuanians is that most of the inhabitants, the majority of the inhabitants, are Orthodox Christians, not pagans. And many... There's a branch of the family. Most of Yogaila's older brothers are actually Orthodox. They've been given principalities in what's now Ukraine, and they'd converted, they'd married Orthodox princesses, and they'd converted. So you have this choice that has to be made. What is Lithuania's identity going to be? And Yogaila and his cousin Vitautas feel that if they accept Orthodoxy, they've, they will be swallowed up. The official Russia? language, 
not by what we would call Russia, but by Orthodox culture. Oh, I, I the, the, the official language of Lithuania was already um, what I will call Ruski, Ruthenian, which is the ancestor of modern um, Belarusian and Ukrainian, because Lithuanian was not a written language. So you could only do politics and government in um, Ruski because it was a written language in Ruthenian. And so to preserve a separate Lithuanian identity, Yogaila and his pagan brothers and cousins decide to opt for Roman Catholicism, Latin Catholicism, and the culture of the West, not of Byzantium. And it's a momentous decision because it creates this political union with Poland, which develops over the next century and a half. And it develops in political lines that are Western, not Eastern. So it inherits the, um, the sort of debate about secular versus ecclesiastical power that animates Western Europe, where, of course... Wait, that's Roman way early in history for such discussions, isn't it? That's like no. totally, they're very ahead of their time, aren't they? Well, I, I don't like the phrase ahead of their time because they're that kind of suggests that we look back and read our own ideas into their ideas. Oh, good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what they're talking about is whether the power of the crown comes from um, from God through the church uh -huh. and that therefore the Pope has the right to depose kings and princes or whether secular rulers have authority. And there's a whole range of Catholic writers like Marsilius of Padua or Thomas Aquinas, who argue, or Dante, the famous Italian poet, who course, argue yeah. the pros and cons of this. Because Western Europe has many states, separate states, kingdoms, and mm -hmm. principalities under the that accept the Catholic Church and the rule of the Pope. It's a major problem. In the East, in Byzantium, the tradition is different because the Roman Empire survives there until 1453. Yeah. And the Eastern Orthodox Church has a very different political culture. It's subordinate to the empire. And therefore, oh, interesting, which is different than um, Western uh, principalities and kingdoms that are that sort of take uh, leadership from the Pope in Rome. And so, as yeah, as this political union develops, those Orthodox nobles and citizens of what is now Belarus and Ukraine, therefore imbibe their political culture from the West, not so much necessarily from Byzantium. They buy into a political culture that becomes more and more, and I will use the term consensual, that draws its inspiration from classical sources, from the idea of the Roman Republic, from Cicero and writers like that, but also from medieval writers who stick up for the power of the secular ruler as against in secular matters, not in religious matters, but in secular yeah. matters, as opposed to the power of the Pope. And this meant that it actually in the early 20th century, liberal Russian historians looked to the Grand Duchy of Lithuania to provide um, some sort of um, tradition of liberal democracy for Russia, but they located it not in Russia itself, which had an autocratic tradition deriving from Byzantium and 
in some respects from the Mongols who'd conquered Kievan Rus, but from Western political culture. So this is a very important background to what's going on in Ukraine at the moment, because for centuries, the Ukrainian, the Ukrainian lands were ruled either from Krakow or Warsaw or Vilnius for about the same amount of time they've been ruled from Moscow. So to regard them just as Russian is wrong. And it's why the, the history of Poland-Lithuania is, is vital and important to this very day. The influences are still to be seen. Let's go back to the line uh, you were talking about um, how Russian 20th century Russian liberals were actually looking back at Polish history as an example of liberalism would look like. Um, in my understanding of this period of Polish history, their government, their former government actually had a lot of checks and balances. Uh, but, and I'm not, you know, I'm not talking checks and balances as if what's familiar to us in the United States. But for that time, there was a lot of checks and balances. And there was also some sort of constitution, which was, go ahead, please. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they believed in checks and balances. As I said, the, the Poles and the then the Lithuanians as well, drew inspiration from the Roman Republic and from Aristotle. And it was Aristotle who provided their sense of checks and balances in his idea of the mixed form of government, that all governments are based on the power of the, or there are various forms of government. There's the, the rule of the one, which is monarchy, the rule of the few or the best people, which is what aristocracy means in Greek, and the rule of the many, the popular rule, the rule of the many. Now, populus is the Latin word for it, and we tend to use the word people, but that creates all sorts of um, connotations today, which were not there in the past. It really means the rule of the citizens, who you think is a citizen of the republic. Now, of course, all sorts of people that we would regard as part of the people are excluded, women for one. Yeah. Although, interestingly, widows are summoned to the Lithuanian parliament in the 15th century because they represent the family. Interesting. Interesting. Some widows, yeah. Not, yeah. It, it, but it is known. But So the citizens in Poland-Lithuania come to be, by the middle of the 16th century, effectively the nobility, which is across this vast polity is about 6 to 7% of the population much, much greater than in, you know, in England, for example, where you yeah. can fit the entire nobility into the House of Lords, into one room. Yeah. Or France, where it's under 1%. Yeah. So by the end of the 18th century, that's about a million people, a huge electorate, as it were. And these are the citizens. Now, this draws its inspiration from Aristotle, but also from Renaissance Republican ideas, which look for the mixed form of government, which Aristotle presents, which is that if you have a pure form of government, monarchy will automatically descend into tyranny because there are no checks on it. And the kings will, some kings will be good, but others will look after their own interests and not the interests of the whole state, as it were. Aristocracy will look after the interests of the few and will degenerate into oligarchy naturally, and popular rule will become mob rule in which property Anarchy. is not safe. Anarchy. Yeah. yeah. 
the best form of government is a mixed form of government, which has elements of them all. And that's what the Poles and Lithuanians regarded throughout the early modern period, down to the 18th century, when the Americans and French started holding out a different model of republicanism. That, but those were their checks and balances. And they talked about how you reach that balance. They sought to constrain their monarchy through election. It was so, not a hereditary monarchy no. system? In, that's, that's one of the reasons why this marriage happened in, in um, 17, uh, sorry, in 1382, uh, sorry, 1386, when, because Louis, as I said, had died in 1382, and there was an interregnum, and Jadwiga, his daughter, was effectively elected by what I'll call the Polish community of the realm, i.e. the important lords. Uh -huh. And from that point on, Poland developed into an elective monarchy. And for 150 years, they had an argument with the Lithuanians about what the nature of their union was, what had happened in 1386. The Poles said, oh, we incorporated Lithuania into the Kingdom of Poland. And the Lithuanians said, no, you didn't. This was a Lithuania merger. is an equal partner yeah. in a union. And the Lithuanians kept electing their own grand dukes, who would then have to be accepted by the Poles as their kings if the Poles wanted the Union to continue. But in 1569, there was a union in Lublin, which was the key moment because the last of the Jagiellon dynasty, Sigismund August, had no children at all. And he feared that the Union would fall apart on his death. And there was a threat from Muscovy from what became Russia in the East. And so he masterminded this union political union, which was very contentious. And uh, the Lithuanians marched out at one point of the common same diet that was discussing this union, at which point the king turned to the what would today we would call the Ukrainian Palatinates, which were the units of, yeah. of local government, and invited them to join the Kingdom of Poland and form their own unions that would guarantee their own political um, situation, such as use of the Ruthenian language, Ruski, use of uh, the privileges of the Orthodox Church, and so on. And the Ukrainians accepted. Um, the Lithuanians came back, and the union was formed, and they agreed this union with a truncated Lithuania, which was now effectively what is today Lithuania and Belarus. And that union said, we form one republic out of two nations and two states. And that was the formula that ended the argument because the Lithuanians had equality of status. So Lithuania had its own government, its own army, yeah. its own local offices. Poland had its own government, its own army, its own local offices. And nobody argued about the nature of the union after that. It's a remarkable political creation. It is remarkable, and I have two questions uh, mm. derived from what you just shared with us in the last couple of minutes we have of this segment. One is, you told me you don't like to use the term ahead of their time, okay? You're talking about a period that's late 1400s, throughout 1500s, and early 1600s. That's where we are. But... I'll go back to what I said. This is way ahead of its time. They were not doing this in England. They were not looking at checking the, to this extent, sort of forming a republic of some sort, or in France, or you know, Germany was a bunch of principalities. They sure, you know. So were they sort of 
liberal minded and the, the term liberal is so broad. I appreciate that. But, but this these is are remarkable. The, it is remarkable, but it's the difficulty of applying modern terms to the past. They certainly believed in liberty or in freedoms, but it was not necessarily liberty in the sense that we would understand it in the sort of post-1776 world. Um, it's not individual liberty ne necessarily, but in the Renaissance Republican tradition, it was a liberty to govern yourself for communities, communities to govern themselves. And in fact, a great deal of what we would call liberty, i.e. the freedom for an individual to decide what religion they are, what they want to do, how they lead their life, that they would have called license and regarded it as a threat to the political community. So, and they write treatises about liberty versus license. What's the difference? And um, the other term that is dangerous and is democracy, because this was not a democracy in our sense. I would call it a consensual system. Power of the crown is limited. You talked about checks and balances. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. power of the crown is limited by the citizens who elect their king. And after the death of Sigismund August in 1572, they decide that royal elections will be common between Poland and Lithuania. They will take place usually near Warsaw, well, always near Warsaw. And any citizen can turn up. The first election, 40,000 or so in 1573, turned up for the election. Oh, wow. And you know, tens of thousands turn up, and they have all sorts of mechanisms for dealing with this. But they regard the elective monarchy as the basis of their liberties, because the price of election is that the king has to agree to effectively a constitution, a set of articles that limit the power of the crown. He says he must call the common parliament every two years, um, that if he breaks his coronation oath, the citizens have the right to depose him. That's you know, wild. Astonishing. Wow. You know, yeah. we would call it impeachment. They exactly. do try on a couple of occasions, but they never succeed. A bit like the American Congress. <laughs> oh, gee. Where does that come from in recent history? Yeah. yeah. So previous president here. It's, a, it's not a democracy. It's a consensual system. The king cannot raise taxes. He cannot declare war or make peace without the consent of the upper house of the parliament, which is called the Senate, like the Roman Senate, which acts as his council between sessions of the parliament, which lasts for six weeks every two years. That sounds like such a it. modern uh, system of government. In many respects, you, you, you could say it's, it's a modern parliamentary system, yeah. and yet its intellectual foundations are very different. The people as a whole are governed, although I said that only the nobility were citizens, but many of the cities and towns have their own are effectively their own self-governing republics. They opt out in the, the the great cities, in a sense, opt out of this noble-dominated system, and rule themselves through German law, often Magdeburg law, mm -hmm. um, which gives them their own system of checks and balances. Even private towns, which are owned by great nobles, they these great nobles want their towns to flourish, and so they let the city council, subject to their own, you know, their agreement, govern yeah. themselves. Why don't we take a short break and then talk about sure. Poland's 
presence and historical influence in Ukraine, which you alluded to in this segment. Sure. We'll be right back. Who are Ukrainians? Seriously, how much do we know about their language and religions? Or what do we know about Kiev and Rus, this historic Russian-Ukrainian state? Professor Warner explains all of this in Season 2, Episode 5. And what's the history of wars between Ukraine and Russia? In Season 2, Episode 8, Professor Stone of the U.S. Naval War College takes us back to Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, and then to Lenin and Stalin to tell us the story of Russia's subjugation of Ukraine. Speaking of Lenin, what's the history of revolutions in Russia? Well, in Season 2, Episode 16, Professor Steinberg shares this Russian refrain. We can't live like this anymore. The links for all these conversations are provided in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Professor Frost. Professor Frost, in the general news media, we hear much about the historical presence and influence of Russia and Ukraine. Of course, that's that's true. But we don't hear much about Poland's influence in Ukraine. Uh, and you alluded to that in the previous segment. So how much of influence did Poland have in Ukraine? Was it for a long period? Uh, yeah, it was for a very long period, over 400 years and longer in some respects, wow. because certainly parts of Western Ukraine, you know, CNN is reporting all the time from Lviv now, which was uh -huh. called Lvov in Polish and Lemberg in German. But that part of Ukraine, Lviv was ruled from Moscow for precisely or just over 50 years in history. Alaska was ruled for longer by the Russians than Lviv <laughs> and Western Ukraine. That's a good and, analogy. You know, Lviv or Lvov was until 1939. You know, in the 20th century, Lviv and Lviv until 1939 was very much a Polish-speaking, Yiddish-speaking city with large Polish and Jewish populations surrounded by a large population of Ukrainians in the countryside. And in many respects, that I talked about the Latin culture from the West. That culture had um, been accepted by the elites of Ukraine. The problem was that although, as I said, in 1569, the Ukrainian lands elites had accepted all sorts of guarantees of their um, rights and liberties, including protection of the Orthodox Church and the use of the Ruthenian language, that many of the Ukrainian nobility, let's call it, were became over the next 50, 100 years, they tended to become Catholic, Roman Catholic, and to speak Polish. They were Polonized, as the historians call it. Wow. They didn't stop thinking that they were Ruthenians. Um, and when I'm in Eastern Europe, I always say, I speak English. That doesn't make me an Englishman. I'm a Scotsman. Of course, yeah. And, you know, Americans speak English, but that doesn't make them English. <laughs> oh, no. And so, you know, that was the situation. Great Ukrainian magnates who had become Catholic would regard themselves as inheritors of that great tradition of the Ukrainian, of the Ruthenian past. But the problem was that there were many nobles who did not 
convert to Catholicism. Ukrainian nobles? Well, Ruthenian nobles, Ukrainian yeah. nobles, who remained Orthodox. And religion became a problem. In 1596, the hierarchy of the Orthodox Church in Ukraine opted for, so the bishops opted for a church union with Rome. This had been on the cards ever since 1386, had been discussed at various points in the 15th century, at the Union of Florence in 1439. But the Muscovy, Moscow, mm -hmm. so this independent principality that grew into be Russia, had always objected to this and had declared itself in 1589, well, first of all, declared itself that it was the inheritor of the tradition of the the Metropolitanate of Kiev, the Tsars or the Grand Dukes of Moscow claimed to be rulers of all Rus, even though they ruled only a bit of it, and most of Rus was I what had been given Rus was ruled from Lithuania. They were ambitious, and so at various points in the 15th and 16th century, there was a separate Muscovite Metropolitan of Kiev and a separate Ukrainian or Ruthenian. Um, Metropolitan of Kiev. 1596, the bishops, who were far more impressed by the dynamism of Latin religious culture, many of there was no real orthodox system of education beyond teaching parish priests how to say the liturgy, because parish priests in the orthodox church are married, and therefore sons of priests often become priests, mm -hmm. whereas the bishops come from the monastic clergy and are much educated to a much higher standard. Many of the bishops of the Orthodox Church had gone to Jesuit schools. They didn't want to become Catholics, but they drew in a different set of political and religious principles. So in 1596, they agreed this church union in which the Uniate or Greek Catholic Church, as it was called, would accept the authority of the Pope in return for permission to retain the orthodox right so the church services remain orthodox in in the way they conduct their their services um and wait they are nominally they're nominally under the auspices of catholicism but the rights what happens in church when you walk in it's still based yeah, on yeah you think you orthodox. walk into an orthodox church they look like that's why when Popes That's elected. interesting. Yeah. Well, if you if you if you watch the election of a pope, you'll see these people dressed as Orthodox priests in the cardinal's conclave. Those are the Greek Catholics. Oh, that's right. Yeah. There, yeah. There's yeah. various Uniate yeah. churches. It's not just in Ukraine. There's also other ones in 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 what's now Romania or Moldova. Uniate church is a is a model. It's part of the great struggle between orthodoxy and Catholicism. Is all of this happening in the Western section of what we call Well, well no, it, it happens across Ukraine. And what happens is that the parish clergy resist, as do many of the um, Orthodox nobility, the, the lesser nobility, the poorer nobility, who haven't converted to Catholicism, and a very special group, the, the Zaporozhian Cossacks, who are Many of them feel that they are of noble inheritance. Some of them are nobles. Many of them are runaway peasants from Poland, from what's now Belarus, who've gone to this southern frontier where the Cossacks hold the line of defense against the Tatars, the Crimean Tatars, who raid the southern 
Slavic lands for generations. Every year they come and they take um, prisoners who they take back and sell on the slave markets of the Ottoman world. And the Cossacks are part of the, this crucial defense against the Ottomans. Although they become a little bit of an annoyance because they want to be, a there's a Cossack register and the, the Polish-Lithuanian parliament wants to keep this at about 8,000 men maximum, 6,000 sometimes. But in time of war, it's expanded to 40,000. And the Cossacks want this register to hold for, you know, and to be a permanent force. Well, that the becomes part, a threat to Poland. Well, the, Pol the Polish parliament feels that the king might use this military force against them. They want to keep control of the military and not have a standing army, an argument that would be very familiar to anybody who knows English 17th yeah. century history. And the Cossacks, I always say in a way, are the conscience of the Commonwealth, because by the mid-17th century, Orthodox citizens, although there has been nominally religious toleration, and ortho the Orthodox have had pretty extensive political rights from the in Lithuania from the, from the 1430s, and guaranteed, as I said, in 1569, there's a sense in which they are second-class citizens as the major nobles in Ukraine turn Catholic. And they feel second-class citizens. And of course, that's a problem for any political system. I think modern America would know about certain members of the Republic who feel themselves to be treated as second-class citizens. Oh, yeah, that's so created a polarity in our politics. There's a polarity there. Yeah. And there is, there's one or two Cossack revolts, the last in 1638, before an immense Cossack revolt that breaks out in 1648 and draws in a lot of support from peasants initially. And because the great Ukrainian lords are actually trying to introduce a serf-based economy in their Ukrainian lands and tying what had been freebooters, free peasants and, and Cossacks down to the land. And this causes an immense uprising. And Poles and Lithuanians can't initially suppress it. And the Cossacks actually ally with the Tatars initially. And then in 1654, they turn to the Grand Dukes of Muscovy and ask for their protection oh. and help at the Treaty of Pereyaslav. Now, the Ukrainians, Cossacks, the Zaporozhian Cossacks who signed this treaty, believe that treaties will be kept and that treaties say what they mean what they say. They'd uh -huh. ask for protection. Of course, the Tsar, as he styles himself, Alexis of Moscow, thinks differently. He thinks this is the return of the lands of Rus. Oh, they think, so, uh, they think Ukrainians are sort of sub subjugating themselves to Russian rule. And this divides the Ukrainians because oh. some among the Cossack leadership feel, you know, they've, they've dr drunk in this culture of the commonwealth which believes in rule from you know self-government in the rights of citizens in you know and and the cossacks govern themselves with a with, with what they call a circle i.e all the officers sit down and agree on policy which is a model taken more or less from the Polish, which is much different than the russian culture at that time i'm still to this day pretty much absolutely and 
the so Ukraine becomes divided between by the end of a great war with Muscovy down to 1667. Ukraine is divided into left bank Ukraine, which remains with Muscovy or Russia, and right bank Ukraine, I to the right of the Dnipro River and Kyiv. That go that remains in the Commonwealth until the partitions at the end of the 18th century. Kyiv is held by Moscow for three years under the 1667 treaty, but of course they break the treaty and never give it back. Interesting. I have a question, and I think you answered it. And this is the question. Within Ukraine, modern Ukraine, are there any legacies of oh. Poland's long presence there? And one of them that I think you alluded to is this, this uh, sort of belief in a more liberal system, this sort of consensual-based form of government is because of their experience with Poland, which is much different than what was happening in Russia for the last 500 years, right? Yeah. I mean, for a long time, Ukrainian historians and Polish historians were at loggerheads about the past, encouraged greatly by the Russians. Why why were they at loggerheads? Well, because Ukrainian, because this was a very savage uprising and on both sides and and Poles and Ukrainians murdered each other it's a civil war and civil war started in 1648 yeah civil mm-hmm. wars are very nasty and yeah. the period afterwards is known in Ukrainian history as the ruina the ruin okay. where ukraine's ukraine's effectively fought a civil war and ended up being dominated by either russians or poles um although the cossack hetmanate this cossack um state is one of the basis for Ukrainians claim to a tradition of statehood that reaches back to Kiev and Rus, but takes in this Cossack hetmanate as a state that maintained its independence for a while in the 17th century and was then subsumed by Moscow and wound up by Catherine and destroyed by Catherine the Great eventually at the end of the 18th century. But after the partitions, of course, when Poland was Poland Lithuania was partitioned between Austria, Prussia, and Russia. Part of Ukraine ended up in Austria, that's Lviv, and Eastern Galicia, as it was called. Part of it ended up in Russia. And the Austrians basically, by the mid-19th century, handed over control of the Ukrainian bit, Eastern Galicia, to the Poles. And the Poles, like the Russians, didn't really regard the Ukrainians as a proper nation with a historical tradition. You know, Ukrainian was just a dialect. And relations got, got very like tense. Putin says. Well, it's, you know, it's the Americans and French came up with this, this idea that the people are sovereign. But in Eastern Europe, who are the people? Who, who is the nation? Yeah. I talked before about Polish-speaking Ruthenian Ukrainians. You know, are they Poles? What about Lithuanians who spoke Polish? The governing class in Lithuania spoke Polish. So most of the capital of the Grand Duchy, Vilnius, spoke Polish in 1918 and said, we want to be part of Poland, although they regarded themselves as Lithuanians. <laughs> that is so And suddenly they were told, it is very uh, complicated. It's, um, you know, the, the greatest poem in the Polish language by Adam Mickiewicz. Adam Mickiewicz was born in the 19th century, in what is now, sorry, in the late 18th century, what's now Belarus. He, so the greatest, greatest poet 
of Polish language was not born in modern Poland. In fact, he only spent about three months in what is now modern Poland because he went to university in Vilnius and his greatest poem, Pan Tadeusz, which is about 1812, about Napoleon's invasion of these lands. His greatest poem starts with the immortal line in Polish, Lithuania, my fatherland. And he is the only poet I know who's the national poet of three separate nations. I know. Not not so much the Lithuanians. Yeah. But because there are, there were great tensions between Lithuania and Poland at the end of the Second World, First World War, when the Poles effectively took the capital of Lithuania, Vilnius, which was in interwar Poland. And this so this complicated stuff, and I do history all the time. This is such a convoluted history. History is highly complicated, and imperial powers like Russia want to make it much more simple, and because they. You know, Russian history dominates in the Anglophone world. Yeah. So, you know, Slavic studies, the Russianists dominate. And Russian historians or historians of Russia in the West are excellent and outstanding. But they've imbibed this version of history. And many of them, not all of them, but many of them don't actually look much at Polish history except as part of that history of Russia. So they look at it in the 19th century when a large part of Poland was part of Russia. Speaking of Russia, why don't we take a short break here then sure. talk about the influence of Poland in early Russian history. We'll be right back. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the Peel.News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you. Professor Frost, going back to the 16th century, Poland and Polish presence sort of writ large in Russia, right? Well, Poland and Russia, well, Poland, Lithuania and Russia, as I have said, went down completely different political paths. Their political cultures were very different. And in the 16th century, there was no doubt which was the dominant power. It was Poland-Lithuania. When the Poles and Lithuanians did not, although the Muscovites from the end of the 15th century had taken back about a third of what had been the Grand Duchy of Lithuania in a series of aggressive wars, they attacked Lithuania in five aggressive wars between 1494 and 1535. Then Ivan the Terrible launched another aggressive war in 1558. But when, you know, you, we, we're seeing it at the moment, when consensual parliamentary systems fight wars, it takes a lot of time for them to get their act together. Yeah. And they can be vulnerable to aggressive autocratic powers. And, but nevertheless, whenever Poles and Lithuanians got their act together, they were perfectly capable in military terms of defeating Muscovy, Russia. And 
in the northern wars that were launched in 1558, they took back some of the territory that Moscow had conquered. They took back Smolensk, for example, mm -hmm. in 1611. Smolensk had been taken by Moscow in, in 1513. And in these wars, the orthodox nobles of what's now Belarus and Ukraine had been more or less completely loyal to um, Poland-Lithuania. They didn't want the Muscovite political system. And the wars that Ivan the Terrible launched had a great strain on Muscovy. They kept getting beaten. And basically, Muscovite military system collapsed in the 1580s. Ivan probably murdered his heir, also called Ivan. His next son, Fyodor, inherited, but Fyodor was not, I mean, he was not a great ruler, probably mentally incapable in many respects. And the power behind the throne was Boris Godunov, who then becomes Tsar when Fyodor dies in 1598. Was that like the prime but, minister? Yeah, he'd been sort of the, the the prime minister, if you like. But he then is a is a you know, there's, Fyodor has no sons, so Godunov is accepted by the boyars as a czar. But Russia descends into what's known as the time of troubles, the smuta, and falls apart into civil war. And a false Dmitri, Dmitri had been another son of Ivan who died young, but a pretender, a wave of pretenders, in fact, arrived. The first of them. That seems to be is, a common theme in Russian history. That happens yeah. again later at the time of Catherine the Great. Yeah, yeah, but the first false Dmitri, as he's known, was a serious challenge. And he comes to Poland and says, I want backing to go and claim the throne of Muscovy. And the king is very cautious. He doesn't back him. Sigismund III doesn't back him. But some Polish adventurers, and one in particular, um, the Palatine of Sandomierz, Mniszech, Jerzy Mniszech, send troops. And for a while, in, um, this false Dmitri gains control of Moscow, is accepted. and But then he begins oh. to suggest that, um, you know, there are hints that he might become a Catholic, that he might impose Catholicism, and he's murdered in a great uprising. And then there's a war between uh, Muscovy descends into chaos with rival claims. The Shusky, uh, uh, a Russian boy called Shusky, is elected Tsar, but he can't control the situation. And at that point, the Poles become involved in a major way. And in 1610, they destroy a Russian army which has many Western mercenaries, including Scots and Germans and Englishmen, in it at the Battle of Klushino in 1610. And in 1612, Muscovy, Moscow itself is occupied for a while. And the son of the King of Poland, Władysław, is elected Tsar by one group among the boyars. At which point, a rebellion, Sigismund won't let his son go to Moscow, partly because Sigismund, the king, feels that he should be the Tsar. Because the Lithuanians in particular had floated the idea of a union with Moscow, like the political union with Lithuania. They say, yeah. you know, our laws contain this culture, which they regard as barbarian. 
But I'm sorry, say that again about barbarians. Who's who's regarded as well? The, the Poles and Lithuanians regard the Muscovites with contempt. They regard oh, them I as see. far less civilized than them, and they think, well, why can't we just have a political union? In 1600, they'd sent a delegation. 1600, 1601, they sent a delegation to Moscow saying, let's have a political union. But that's where the two different political cultures cannot go, go along. When, when there's a great account of a Polish soldier who's in Moscow in 1612, and he talks to the boyars and he says, why don't you want to get control of your own affairs? Why don't you want you know, to elect your czar? Why don't you want to do this like we do it? It's so yeah, much superior. Good question. And his Muscovite interlocutors just say, no, we prefer having a powerful czar who rules over us and who settles all disputes and actually takes care of the powerful people. And, huh. you know, there's a great popular um, cult of Ivan the Terrible, who's an awful man in many respects, who, yeah. you know, he all sorts of atrocities committed. I mean, he sacks the city of Novgorod and levels it to the ground. Um, and destroys many of the boyars, operates a short reign of terror known as the Aprichnina. But many Russians see him as, you know, their strong protector. And you can see that in Putin today. You know, Putin takes out the oligarchs yeah, that he yeah. doesn't like and destroys them. And people say, that's great. All these nasty capitalist wealthy men who are destroying Russia. Our czar, Vladimir Putin, will take them out. There's a tradition there. And so the, the, it's a dialogue of the deaf. The two sides don't understand each other. And religion decides it. And um, Michael <laughs> Romanov is elected, and the Romanov dynasty is founded. The Poles are driven out. And you know the rest is history, as they say. But that's the one moment where it could have taken a different turn. And, and through it all... Poland was the stronger dominant party. Yeah, and, until and, Peter the Great, until the start of the 18th century. Yeah, and all of that changes. And as you uh, uh, pointed out in, in our previous segment, it leads to the partition of Poland, and is, Poland actually ceases to exist as a country for some time. And that's a whole different conversation. Um, a whole a different conversation. A, yeah. a fascinating one, maybe. We'll, we'll, I'll have the pleasure of discussing that with you another time. Let's take a break here. Stay with me and Professor Frost as we get into the perspective. Did you know you can preview our podcasts? That's right. Just click the podcast highlights button on our website, www.thepeel.news, and we will email you each episode's highlights and relevant links to news and history for free. Pretty cool, right? Professor Frost, how does Poland's history affect its relation now with Ukraine, Ukrainian refugees, what's happening in Ukraine now? It's a remarkable phenomenon because it's not necessarily one that might have been predicted until it actually happened. As I said in the previous segment, relations between Poles and, and Ukrainians in the 19th and 20th centuries have not been good all the time. There are their own um, historical ghosts that haunt the relationship um, 
the Second World War, the question of borders, the question of whether Lviv and the Western Ukrainian lands should be part of Poland as they were between the wars or not. The whole history of the Second World War, there were large massacres of Poles in Ukraine, in Volhynia in the 1940s. And these are ghosts that have not yet been fully laid between the two peoples. So there would have been some trepidation about what the Polish reaction would be. But there's another side to it in that since 1990 and the fall of the Soviet Union, there has been a coming together, certainly at the level of the writing of history to an extent, history that reaches back before the 20th century into these times that we've been talking about today. And a large number, an increasing number of Ukrainian and Polish historians, like Lithuanian historians, have come together to talk about their common past. And there's several Ukrainian historians who are realizing and propagating the idea that this consensual culture, this culture of religious toleration, this complex Western Latin culture is part of what has defined Ukraine and ensured that Ukraine is not Russia. The Uniate Church that I talked about, certainly in Western Ukraine, but in other parts of Ukraine as well, is seen as now in many respects, a Ukrainian church that is not, if not unique to Ukraine, at least is a mark of Ukrainian difference. And, and one of the great problems for Ukraine in determining what its national culture is, is that it, you know, historians talk about defining your nation against the other. For Scots yeah. or the Irish, the other is always England. Yeah. But for Ukrainians, there are two others. There's Russia, which assumes that Ukrainians are just a sort of their little brothers, uh, a rather defective form of Russia. And the Poles, who had, as I said, in the 19th century, the Polish elites had this sort of rather condescending, paternalistic attitude towards Ukrainians. They're not a proper people. And Ukrainian historians in the 19th century and um, many Ukrainian literary figures like Ivan Franko had to define themselves. I mean, Franko was one of many Ukrainian, members of the Ukrainian elite in the 19th century who were actually of descended from nobles who would have called themselves Polish. But huh. they were Ukrainians, and they opt for a Ukrainian identity as against a Polish identity. Um, and there are many examples of this, you know, the, the Sheptitsky brothers, one of whom became a Ukrainian Orthodox priest and the other became a general in the Polish army. Oh, you know, this, this, you know, people had multiple uh, dual identities, but in the, in the late 19th and early 20th century, they were forced to choose. I can be a Scotsman and a Briton, but you couldn't be a Ukrainian and a Pole. So this coming together has been oh. important. And I think, and Poland was the first state to recognize an independent Ukraine in 1991. And Ukrainians haven't forgotten that. Polish support on the Maidan when President Yanukovych, the Russian pro-Russian president, was driven mm -hmm. out. The Poles, in large numbers, supported that and turned up on the Maidan and gave help. So there were signals that things were changing. And 
you know, to somebody who, like me, who researches their common past, it's a very positive development and, and, uh, and one that is much to be welcomed. Do you think Ukrainians, um, Ukrainian historians, or even, I guess, common people, lay people, not historians, are beginning to uh, reach further back into their history, into their um, into their interactions with Poland and this consensual former government, sort of forgiven the immediate past in which there was a lot of strife between Ukraine and Poland, going back to... Uh, well, I think that's what this war has helped produce, that Ukrainians want the self-government that that Polish tradition offers. Yeah. And, you know, the one thing that has happened is, yes, many Ukrainians, large numbers of Ukrainians, are Russian speakers and have relatives in Russia and have traditionally, in many respects, lent towards a Russia that's open to them and, and have been prepared up to a point to accept some of the Russian view of the past. But this war has, and Putin's policy over the last 10, 15 years, has led them to become Ukrainians in a way that was perhaps not obvious that they would in 1990, 1991. And that is Putin's, you know, given the choice between Putin's system of rule and self-government democracy that in part is built on that Polish past, but also draws on the Cossack experience. Yeah. You know, that is something that Ukrainians have adopted. And to see the Polish prime minister in Kiev recently talking to Zelensky was was marvelous. You know, was, this is a yeah. coming together of peoples that have been separated since, certainly in, in many respects, since 1648, but since the partitions as well. That's not to, I mean, Ukrainians will not forget the dark side of their relations with Poland. And they should not, and Poles should not forget that relations were tense. But there's a positive side to those relations, which needs to be recognized, that much of what is now modern Ukraine draws on roots in Poland-Lithuania. And I would stress the Lithuanian side as much as the Polish side, because you know Ukraine, the Ukrainian land spent a great deal of time, 200 years and more, under Lithuanian rule. Why do you think... Poland's history, particularly this history, you know, for people that are into history, such as I, um, I think in a previous communication, um, as we were, you and I were talking about this podcast episode, I told you, uh, I, I began to learn about the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, this empire, as I called it, through reading books about France and Russia, not about Poland itself. And I got to confess here, it didn't occur to me to read a book about Polish history. And, and, and this is coming from a guy who was into history. I love reading history, but in America, and I don't know what it's like in the United Kingdom, most people don't really know this, you know, glorious uh, Polish history, particularly its religious tolerance, which a lot of Jewish people went there and settled there. Why is that? Why do you think that is? Well, it's, part, it? it's a complex story. It's partly because since 1776 and 1789, the French and the Americans defined the modern state as being um, ruled under the sovereignty of the people. 
you have to define the nation and the nation state is seen by many political scientists as you know the ultimate form of political legitimacy and so of course you write the history of the nation state and so polish history was written separately from ukrainian history was written separately from belarusian history was written separately from lithuanian history and the period of the union was regarded in these separate nations as problematic because it held back the development of the nation state so ukrainians would say oh well you know those years of the polonization we lost our elites to poles and that hindered our our development as a nation so that's but one reason was viewed the other, as a negative then it was viewed as a negative and it's only now that it's being viewed as more positive okay that was as, one reason you know, that's one reason you know today we're in a globalizing world in which political unions the european union have emerged as a means of and the 20th century which showed the dark side of nationalism yeah has caused people to question that model and think about political unions to prevent war like the european union which was its original purpose um so that's one reason the other reason is to use a phrase i've used many times in such interviews is that history is they say is written by the winners and that is true but only partly true because losers also write history but they don't get translated into english or german <laughs> and so you know when i started out and for the first time thought about going to poland and my history professor in st andrews in scotland said are you thinking of doing polish history for your phd and i said um well, yeah, because I thought it might get me a better reference for the scholarship I was applying for to go on a summer school. And he said, no, seriously, think about it, because we all know that Poland was terribly important in the 16th and 17th centuries. But we don't know much about it at all because we can't read the language. And most of the history that was published about Poland or Lithuania or Ukraine was published in the local languages. And the versions that we were taught in Britain or America were versions of East European history, the big textbooks that were written by people who read all the Russian history in English, in which the, you know, was largely seen through Russian eyes. Poland-Lithuania was a failed state that deserved to be swept out of history and, you know, empire, you know, you called it an empire. I don't like calling Poland-Lithuania an empire because it was a union that was put together by consent yeah, of yeah, the peoples. Right. It was not a conquered empire in that sense. But the Russian historians claim, or you know, Russian historians claim it was an empire, just you weren't such a successful empire as we were, which is why you lost. <laughs> so th that's actually a good reason. So really our view of uh, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth comes from um, sources that are Russian and they have their own agenda. But it has changed. You know, my, my doctoral supervisor, Norman Davis, published in the early 1980s, God's Playground, his two-volume history of Poland, which is a brilliantly written book. I um, love the title, God's Playground. Yeah, it's, it comes from a, a Polish um, phrase, Boże Igrzysko, which actually means the plaything of God, the toy of God, the toy of that God. God has played around with Poland. And, uh -huh. you know, it's a huge joke. But it's he helped revive it. And now there are many... You know, increasing number of historians of Poland in this period of Lithuania writing in English. And so the material is coming out now that makes it possible to read this alternative version. It's an alternative version of the history of 
these lands. And, you know, we have to read the the Russian historians and the Polish historians and the Ukrainian historians and put it all together. Because, as you said, it's a very complex history. And there's Jewish history in that as well. Yeah. You know, because the Jews, you know, they used to call Pauline heaven because it was the one place in Europe where the principle of self-government for the Jewish community was established. The Jews ruled themselves. They had to pay taxes to the state, but it was up to the Jews how they collected them. 75 to 80% of all the Jews in the world lived in Poland, Lithuania in the early 1770s before the first partition. Because of the relative freedom they had. Because of the relative freedom. They had their own parliament of the lands. They had their own court system. They ran their own affairs. Um, that sort of tolerance is so, I know you don't like the phrase ahead of time, I'm, I'm searching to say to substitute it with something else, but in comparison to other European uh, polities, this was so far advanced in religious uh, tolerance, right? I would use a distinction that we can make in English, but you can't make in Polish where there's only one word, tolerancia. I would say toleration. which is legal toleration of different religions of different peoples that gives them certain legal protections and rights. Tolerance is another matter. Now, there was tolerance, sorry, there was toleration in 16th century Poland, Lithuania, for Protestants, for Jews, for um, the Orthodox, etc. Not because anybody thought that this was a good idea, but because politically it was more of a threat to political stability if there wasn't religious toleration. Interesting. And, out and of necessity. Out of necessity. Nobody, you know, and there were there was quite a lot of people, I call them Republican Catholics, who did think that tolerance of different religions was a good idea. And, you know, there's a wonderful book by David Frick of Berkeley about Vilnius in the 17th century, showing how actually practical toleration worked and how, you know, these faiths intermarried. They had godparents from different faiths. They respected each other's holidays and calendars up to a point. Interesting. But then, then the hardliners on all sides are the ones that bring it down. But the problem for the Jewish population came when the Enlightenment arrived in Poland and just before the partitions, they abolished Jewish self-government. And that created all sorts of problems because when... And we're talking state, about mid-1700s now. Mid we're to talking late about sort of the late, seven, late 18th century. Okay. Because that left a huge population of Jews who were very much, in many respects, an urban population in small towns scattered around Poland, Lithuania, and Ukraine, and in the large towns too. and. In the course of the 19th century, you know, when Poland became independent in 1918 and interwar Poland, you know, a large percentage, up to 30, 40 percent of the doctors and lawyers in Warsaw were Jews. 30 to 40 percent? Wow. And this gave rise to great anti-Semitism and attempts. There were Jewish, there was sometimes they were introduced, sometimes they were resisted, Jewish benches in the some of the universities in Poland in interwar Poland, um, and discussions about introducing, you know, um, limits on the number of Jews who could study at the university. Partly, this was not 
this was anti-Semitism. Yeah. But partly it was because there weren't enough Poles, they felt, who were entering these professions. But Polish-Jewish relations took a nosedive in the 19th and early 20th centuries, and that's a tragedy of its own. It is, and 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 just to uh, remind our listeners, again, Jews came to Poland early on, going back several centuries, because of the relative freedom that it yeah. provided in comparison to the rest of Europe, and that 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 diminished over centuries. That diminished after after the late 18th century. You know, self government. It was the principle of Poland Lithuania, yeah. and it was extended to the Jews under the political system. Professor Frost, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. You're welcome back to the Peel.News anytime. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. Thank you, Professor Frost. Thank you very much for having me. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At the Peel.News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit, to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at the Peel.News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective to our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments about this episode right on our homepage at www.thepeel.news. Just click the email icon in the lower right corner of your screen. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele, the host of the Peel.News.